we have our weekly calls and that's sort of our banter time catch up as well as obviously dealing with all the, the issues of the of the week and you know we're quite f flexible it means obviously you need you don't have commutes people can sort of start when they want and if they need to go off to a doctor's appointment etc etc you know that, so you know if someone wants to work in a pub for a day and take their laptop you know they can and so if, if you do get cabin fever for example you can just you know pop out and see a friend and or work or hot desk at a friend's office or whatever so um I, it's not really been a problem for us that i'm aware of this is Inside Indie Games. Join us behind the scenes to see what it takes to create a great indie company and to craft the games that people long to play. Ollie Bennett is the CEO of Cardboard Sort, who are a games development company based in the northeast of England. Now, Ollie has worked in the games industry for over 12 years, across six companies with roles in QA, design and production. Before starting Cardboard Sword, he was associate producer on Sony's Little Big Planet on PS Vita. But Ollie's journey into the industry started, as it does for many of us, back at university. He studied a course at Salford University called Computer Video Games Design, which was one of the few of its kind at that time in the UK. Ollie did admit to me though that he was perhaps a bit lazier than he should have been at uni and went out into the wide world without specialising in any particular discipline. Fortunately, he'd had a summer job at Sega during his time as a student. Weighing up his options, he decided to phone them up and see if there were any openings. That paid off, and shortly after, he began his full-time working life with them in the QA publisher side. I was curious to find out what Ollie feels would have improved his situation when he graduated, though. Looking back from where he is now, what might he have done differently? And if you're still at uni yourself, what can you do to be better equipped to go out there and earn a living in the industry? Definitely the two main things, and they lead into each other, is, is portfolio and self-teaching. Self, having the self-discipline to, to learn things outside of, of a course. So you know, if, if you take everyone and you give them the same course and assume that they all work to the best of their ability and they all have a first degree at the end of it they're all going to know the exact same thing mm -hmm. and so when that comes to interview it's going to be down to you know first impressions any prejudices that the employee uh, employer might have any mm -hmm. um, luck with regards to life situation and where you live and and when you apply all these sorts of things when re really it should be down to you know how good are you uh, for the role Mm -hmm. uh, how, how much skill do you have and so you've got to have you've got to push yourself to be beyond what you're being taught and the best way to do that is to is to teach yourself and then through teaching yourself you can be building up a portfolio and 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 people will hire you based on your portfolio it's i think it's a fallacy that when people say that i can't get a job without experience and i can't get experience without a job because um you can make your own experience and there's practically no discipline uh, where you can't build a portfolio through, you know, modding communities or picking up Unity or Unreal and and following tutorials and um, you know build some assets and get a student license. You know, if you need a part-time job to fund a, f a few bits here and there, then do it. Um, but 
you know, if you just sit back and, and admit defeat and, and say, oh, the world is against me because I don't have experience, well, then, you know, unfortunately, you're not going to go anywhere. So um, it's teach yourself and build a portfolio and start building it early um, and, and you'll find work. And do you think you do or you should come out of university knowing what area of the industry you want to go into? Um, I think you can discover that through experience. Mm -hmm. I, I always wanted to be a designer. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had the foolish idea that you could, that there was this sort of, um, amazing job called a a designer, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you come up with an idea for a game and then suddenly everyone goes, yes, of course, we'll give you millions of pounds and develop (laughs) it for you. Please tell us young student graduate how we can best spend this 50 million pound budget. We've been sat here waiting to spend, um, so you know, I still had the 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 idiotic idea that that, that role existed. Um, uh, but even when that was crushed, and I was working up through QA, I still thought, yeah, I want to be a designer. Uh, you know, start off through level designer, and then con- contribute to the the idea process and the concepting. Um, but then I kind of got a taste of production through uh, various QA roles that I was given on on top of the pure testing side of things. Um, and I found I enjoyed it. And so um, I transitioned from desires of design into into production. Um, and yeah, I, I became a producer on uh, Little Big Planet PS Vita at Double Eleven, uh, which was the last job I had before my current company. Um, and yeah, I loved it. Uh, I've I've since actually gone back and and done elements of design and and thoroughly enjoyed those as well. But you know the the fact is I did transition and realised a, a job role that I didn't ever dream I I would want to do or would be good at. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's not necessary to specialise that early. Actually, it's there's a lot of exploration involved really along the way. Yeah, it, it definitely helps. Um, yeah. And you know I. I I, I think you're unlikely to be someone that's naturally good at art, for example, or, or wants to be an artist to then suddenly, you know, jump to say audio or yeah. to <laughs> um, or to coding. Now I can understand maybe to animation or to technical artist or you know mm. something like that. But yeah. um, I would certainly I would say pick a skill mm. and get good at it. If you want to transition, transition once you're good at at least one thing first, because if if you if you're applying for a job and someone says we're looking for an artist, they're not looking for a generalist. They're not looking you. You know, if you're an art, if you've got okay art, and you say, oh, but I can also do audio and design and this, that, and the other. They don't care. Yeah. Because <laughs> very rarely, I, th- I, I, in my experience, and and you know, caveat with everything I say, it's all based on my experiences and what I've seen. So yes. don't take everything I say <laughs> as fact. But, um, yeah, in my experience, people tend to look for a specific role, and and because they have that need. And I think it's only when you're when you're having a, a brand new studio or a brand new expansion or team that generalists tend to be looked for in addition to yeah, those specific yeah. roles. Ollie's career at Double Eleven came to an end by way of redundancies in the company. But when one door closes, another opens. And that's when he and one of his former colleagues decided to take the leap and form Cardboard Sword. That was six years ago now, and for the first couple, Ollie told me that it was just the two of them. In the early days, they made the bulk of their money doing consultancy work for a range of clients. But, understandably, that was never going to be the company's end goal. 
we always wanted to do our own IP. That was always the ideology of, of our company was we, did, we didn't want to just be a contract um, or porting house. Uh, it was, um, it never appealed to us. It was always the make our own IP, but you can't obviously just say, right, we're making our own IP. You need money, you need a team. Um, and it's a very risky thing to do. Yes. So after the first couple of years of, of consultancy we we raised a, a, a small amount of capital but enough to to mean that we could stop doing consultancy for a few months while we um focused on sort of prototyping and uh, we found a few other people that were keen that were aiden's aiden was the guy i set it up with aiden's uh, previous colleagues at frontier mm -hmm. and they joined us and we started prototyping a bunch of 3d titles um and then the two artists showed us some pixel artwork that they had been doing as a hobby project over the last couple of years um and we thought you know this is fantastic it was mm. beautiful pixel art stunning 2d hand animated characters and all these different npcs and animations for the the player character and we just thought you know there's there's a chunk of a game here already so let's turn this into the into a game um and we then found out about the uk games fund starting mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. so i thought well i'll give i'll give applying for that a try what have what have we got to lose um, and we were lucky enough to, to get the first round. So that £25,000 investment was enough to um, enable us to start development. Siege and Sandfox is a 2D stealth Metroidvania game with a real nostalgic 16-bit look to it, albeit combined with some powerful modern tools and techniques. And as a company, Cardboard Sword have long since moved on from their days as a two-person operation, I was interested to learn more about their team as it looks today. There's seven of us um, full-time at Cardboard Sword, and then we have a small handful of contractors. So um, there's a... And, and several of us wear several hats, as, yeah, as is the case with almost all indie studios, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's a producer stroke designer, Aiden, who's one of the guys I set... Who's the other chap I set Cardboard Sword up with. Mm -hmm. um, there's Chris, who's sort of our lead designer, uh, Ed and Keith, the brothers who are the artists, uh, another Ed who's our animator, and Rex who's our coder, and then of course myself, I do practically everything apart from develop the game. <laughs> and then I do a tiny bit of game development as well, very little, yeah. relative, certainly relative to the other guys, but uh, yeah, so I do you know all the legals, all the admin, third party relations, yeah. etc. Et all the rest. <laughs> all the rest, yeah. All the stuff I never ever expected I'd be doing in my career nor wanted to do. Yeah, but, nothing, you to know, do if, <laughs> nothing to do with games. Nothing to do with games, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it, it facilitates people with far more skill than I have and that makes me happy and that makes me feel like I'm I'm doing something worthwhile and still you know, part of the team because without me, well, they'd have to be doing it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. great. That, I mean, that kind of ties into what we were talking about a little bit before around the fact that you, a big part of, or a big ethos behind your company is the ideology around how it runs around the team, especially the the, the whole element of equality. Can you tell me a bit about that? How, how do you think about building a team in a with high equality in mind? Well, once again, you know, it, it may it may be naive and it may prove to bite us on on the butt. Um, 
and we have been told by by people before that it, you know certain things that we're doing are unwise but um like i think we'd rather particular. give it a, give it a try first uh well you know we're we're all directors at the company for example okay. seven of us and we all have equal shares so um you know depending on how successful the game is we, we all have equal compensation um and we like to have the artists making the decisions on art and the designers making the decision on design and um, everyone can obviously have a voice of input on that, but ultimately the final decision goes to its respective departments. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all have faith in each other's abilities, experiences, and, and directions for those. Um, and I think that's essential because otherwise they shouldn't be in that role. If they, you know, so it's it's that it's it's making sure that there's no elitism that that this sort of management is not. It's not sort of a self-dictating, uh, or you know, this this entity at the top that that makes everyone else feel sort of like lesser of of a person. Yeah. Um, and what and what have people? What have the concerns been? Why have you been told that that's possibly not a good idea? Well, it's 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 all manner of things. Um, one too many voices. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, lack of control, possibility of dissent, of, of people getting bored and or, or scared and running away and leaving things in, in or, or you know not working hard enough or equally or you know um, yeah. all these different things. And and look, yeah, it's a possibility. Of course, it is. Let's let's imagine the siege of the Sand Fox becomes makes a, a huge amount of money and. You know, we all take our chunk and then one person says, right, well, I'm going to travel the world for a year and there's nothing he did to stop me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that, th these things might happen and, and our structure kind of uh, permits that. But obviously we can then, uh, you know, there is, we're not powerless. Yes. You know, we haven't made ourselves in, in so that we can't do anything in that scenario. But um, I think we'd rather make the mistake and, and give it a try. Yeah. Than, than build ourselves in a autocratic business business sort of structure that, yeah. that as I say, makes makes the the true talent of a business, which is the developers, um, feel like they are less important or that they come second to people whose job it is just to organise the the work that they produce. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that pay off? so far can you think of any situations where it's there's been obvious benefit to the way you run it i think in the attitude of of the team i yeah. i think there's there's no yeah you know, the, the two of us that make a lot of the decisions do so because it's our field it's our where we have most of our experience mm -hmm. um but there's no i don't think there's any point where any anyone else on the team feels like they can't speak up and, and suggest or or input and i don't think anyone feels that they're not equal in any way yeah yeah um i think there is a respect of each other's disciplines and and it, they everyone lets everyone else get on and and do the things and we have you know we have our meetings and we make sure everyone knows about everything that's going on there's no secrecy there's no um elitism or or, mm. or 
deciding what's right for the rest of the team to know about because that they're not instantly puts up walls with us and them right yeah, you know it's yeah. it's people if when, when people know what where everything's happening yes it does share concerns and it can take out it can take time away from people if it's not if if it's not done at the right time for example so you know, for example, I don't, I don't let everyone know about everything as it happens. We'll have our weekly meeting, and I'll tell people what's happened in that week. Then, you know, it's not like I've got a, a RSS feed of of all the emails that come through or anything like that. But you know, um, my job is to manage the company, and so we're pitching at the moment, and we have some people that have said no. We've got some people that have said let's let's find out more, and and. Yeah, I update the, the team that weekly with with that information. Yeah, yeah. So, have you seen any of the downsides yet? I think a lot of them are transparent or hard to know, hard to see because it's held by the individual. Mm. So, you know, if there is any dissent or dissatisfaction, if there's any sense of not belonging or being equal or anything like that i don't yeah. think people tend to voice those things straight away they tend to harbor them and yeah. and bottle them up and and you know perhaps after the siege in the sand fox someone might turn around and say right you know screw this i'm off <laughs> or whatever but um yeah I, I i'd like to think that we the way we're structured means that people can say these things yeah yeah you mentioned before as well around the idea of it's it's the classic level of incompetence um, problem where you promote technicians towards management roles, um, where you get an average manager and sacrifice your best artist. Mm-hmm. You have you had that your teams what seven or, seven or so people you said seven yes. seven yeah have you had that issue so far? Is that how are you dealing with that just now? Uh, no, we haven't because um, everyone. Well, I mean, the the team is small enough that we don't really need managers. We've yeah. got pr- a producer and um, a stroke designer, mm-hmm. and and he manages everyone's workloads, yeah. um, and I manage this, the company. So they ha- they ha- are just the, a- able to get on and do their discipline. So if you want to keep people encouraged as to stay as technicians, as people doing the good work that they do, how do you encourage them to stay long term, to feel advanced? If they're because you know the, the usual motivation is that you know you get to the next level of your career, you're a senior and then you're a manager. And how do you do that while keeping people in the work that they're good at? One of the great things about our team is uh, because of we've all had experience and we've all done the time in AAA. Uh, we don't have these aspirations towards titles. And so that doesn't dictate uh, motivations. There's no, no one on our team is thinking, you know, uh, just one more year at Cardboard Sword and my CV will say, you know, head lead coder or lead designer or lead artist, you know. So there's no ego and ambition here. And it, that, that might change as we scale up and, and we yeah. employ new people, uh, uh, juniors, uh, as necessity dictates. But, you know, if that happens at all, we're hopefully going to aim away from that. But at the moment, yeah, there's there's none of that there. There's no, I need to get the X amount of time done so my CV has this on it. What's, yeah. what's, what we do have is we want to get this game successful and out the door 
so we can then make the next game that we want to make and preferably fund it ourselves. And um, that is is the draw for us all. And then of course, having the being directors and being shareholders means that we get compensated fairly and equally for that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what the motivator is. There's no there's no I need to I need to fuel my CV. Yeah, yeah. And you think you can keep hold of that ethos even as like you say <laughs> no idea. As early stage people come in who haven't had that. You know, you'll have people that haven't had the AAA experience. Well, we'll see. I mean, a large part of of how we want we w wish to operate as well is is on the contractor model. Mm -hmm. You know, the movie industry has been doing it for decades where they'll have a movie and they'll have someone whose job it is to to team up for the that specific movie, yeah. get everyone that's needed. All the people that are on that movie know what their role is, how long it's for. They get the thing done. It's out the door. They all go away and, and do the next project for another client or for the same client. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that it's all, you know, budgeted, funded, organized, boom, it's out the door. And that makes a lot of sense in many ways. And, and we've seen across the UK and the world, you know, all these, these studios that scale up hugely by hundreds of people at times and lots of layoffs because the next project is delayed or um, not as big as the previous. And all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've um, displaced hundreds of developers and they don't want to go back to the same company again because they're scared it might happen again yeah, and, yeah. and they, they you know have to move around the, the country so our ambition is to to scale up and down with contractors and hire as few people as we can yeah. and if we do hire people i think we would want them to be relatively similar to us in terms of sort of experience and skill level uh, rather than you know we might obviously take a few juniors here and there if 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 we had a job that we think we could we could develop internally and, and grow but uh, we're a remote working studio as well so we don't have an office and and that makes that harder as well so okay. having someone we know is skilled and can work from home and, and plug into the the studio i think works for us yeah yeah what made you take the decision to do that to be remote um one was um that we didn't want anyone restricted by moving so you know if you've got a family or a place that you live that you that you like you know you don't we, we we're fortunate enough to live now with fast enough internet and and free online tools to p permit it and so why force you know we've, we've our art we've got our two artists are in nottingham and we have a, a designer in milton Keynes and myself in middlesbrough um you know why force people to move around if if you don't need to i mean and then of course overheads it's great not having to pay rent <laughs> um we do suffer a little bit in that you know you miss the office environment and if you're an extrovert you like to be around other people i think most people on our team are introverts or i call myself an extroverted introvert um and you know it, it is nice to get out and to be around people but um it works for us and it saves us an awful lot of money. Is there anything you've done to try and foster that community in the team, even though you're remote, that trying to get around the fact that you've not got everyone in one place? We, as I say, we have our weekly calls and that's sort of our banter time catch up as well as obviously dealing with all the, the issues of the, of the week. And um, 
we have online chat tools that we use slack and discord um so that enables us to sort of you know communicate things like that but um yeah we haven't really had any problems arise as far as i'm aware and, uh, we, you know we're quite f flexible through the size of the company and um uh, the remoteness of it is is it means obviously you need you don't have commutes people can sort of start when they want and if they need to go off to a doctor's appointment etc etc you know that so you know if someone wants to work in a pub for a day and take their laptop you know they can and yeah. so you can kind of self-direct your own um if, if you do get cabin fever for example you can just you know pop out and see a friend and or work or hot desk at a friend's office or whatever yes. so yeah, yeah. um I, it's not really been a problem for us that i'm aware of let's go to some of the larger advice <laughs> i'm interested to know you're kind of not even looking just at a cardboard sword but your whole career the things that you've learned over that time is there is there anything in particular that you do wish you'd known when you started out back in that uh, that first qa job that you got i wish i'd known to to teach myself more skills <laughs> the advice i give to people starting off starting out graduates and students in particular um and it's something i've learned and i wish i'd, I'd learned it earlier is that everyone is another person and the moment you mentally put someone on a pedestal above you, they will subconsciously occupy it when you talk to them. So if you are um, trying to get a business contact or trying to get a job or trying to or meeting someone at a networking event or what, whatever scenario you meet someone in, if you talk to them just like they are completely and utterly equal to you, then they will respond in kind. And that can get you through so many more doors and and have and foster relationships much faster than if there's this sort of meek or shy or um beholding sort of temperament that you that you have when you when you're speaking to someone so did you have a particular turning point in that i mean i, I think that, that that echoes with a, i'm sure a lot of people listening <laughs> in their younger days the, <laughs> yeah the the i think the keenest memory i have is so I was at Sumo Digital as a QA tester there, and um, I got made redundant with a huge chunk of the company. This was back in the Foundation 9 Entertainment days. And I then got another temporary QA job, and that finished on a time thing. And I just thought, this is, I can't live, I can't just go in and out of these QA jobs constantly. My career, every time I move a step forward in my career, I'm taking a step back again. I'm going nowhere. I'd been, as I say, almost six years. So I'd started my own studio, which I, I'd called Base Outsource. Mm -hmm. And it was to do outsource sort of QA design consultancy. Um, I never made it into a limited company. I was just uh, freelancing at the time because I wanted to see if I could actually do it. And one of my first clients was Sumo Digital on, a, on an unannounced project. And um, I remember after the, after working on the project with Sumo, um, there was sort of like a small after party thing. And I remember speaking to a particular person there. I'm obviously not going to name any names, but um, treated me completely different to how when I was an, uh, uh, that cringy, embarrassing employee to then a service provider providing them with a solution to what they needed. Yeah. And and I realized because I had the confidence behind me of what I was doing, I I, be, I was more mature in, in how I acted and behaved and, and the relationship that I fostered yeah. then. And I saw 
how that was reacted differently and thought, okay, yeah, this is, this is how I should have been when I was an employee. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of the turning point. I, I've subsequently gone up and down in those and understanding those lessons, but, but yeah, that was one of the key learning points for me. Yeah. I think we can all stand to relearn humility every now and again, can't we? <laughs> yes, definitely. What do you think you'll do differently in the next few years, if anything? Are you, do you plan to, have you learned anything over the last little while that is going to inform your next few years of, of running the business? Everything takes so much more time than you think it's going to take. And it doesn't matter how much experience you have, you still can't, I think no one is able to accurately predict the time frame that things take. You know, there's there's often people will say, take as much time as you think it's going to take, then double it, and then double it, you know, all these these (laughs) wonderful phrases that obviously have no practical application in planning. But... um, it's it's just just understand that things are going to take a lot more time um all things and also when you if you do risk own ip it's going to be a huge risk uh we you know we knew it was risky mm-hmm. we, we we knew you know focusing entirely on own ip was was a, a big risk but um i think perhaps i should have prepared for plan b and c earlier because obviously we prepared plans B and C, but I, going back to the time thing, I you know, I think I I should have started to pull the lever on on planning those or going to the first stage of those a bit earlier. Right. Okay. What What do you think is the biggest risk you're taking with that on your own IP? What you say you mentioned big risk a few times there. What What is the biggest one? Um. obviously there's the lack of of income yeah so you know you you get investment for a a game a development project but that investment is is all the money that you get coming in yeah and so you know things like a a loan are not possible you can't really get credit if you can't be doing monthly repayments and obviously Mm -hmm. um so financial options for um, securities become limited mm-hmm. so you know we do we're doing quite a bit of contract work at the moment uh, while we're in the pitching phase for some more money and and um so that's that's one of the major things uh, and if you do have large overheads of course then that's that can be the killer for us obviously it's a risk whether or not the titles are successful and it's to, to perhaps to one's ego as much as anything else but um <laughs> i don't think the the risk is one that's that um, stops you wanting to do it, wanting to give it a try, or that would hit any of us hard enough to make us quit. Yeah, um, it would just be a disappointment. But it's still a risk there. And what we could have done is we could have run Cardboard Sword as a, as a work for hire studio for four or five years, had loads of capital, and then done these things. But then if we'd done an IP, perhaps we would have still, you know, risked a, a huge amount of money and still found ourselves in, in, in a place where we needed more. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I think if we hadn't done own IP and done just contract work, none of us would have been happy. Yeah. So I think we'd we're we're much happier risking it all on own IP, own IP, and then uh, if it all goes wrong, going right, fine, contract work, contract work. Now let's try it again. 
We've heard a lot in this series so far about people overcoming challenges and obstacles and going on to have success in their various fields. It's worth noting though that this is something that's really hard to do completely on your own. So as we got wrapped up, I wanted to find out from Ollie what he's seen as the biggest impact on building his network, on making contacts and finding that help and support along the way. I'd say there are two main things for that. Uh, one is Develop Brighton as an event is fantastic. I would recommend any UK developer certainly um, to try and get down to that if they can. It's a lovely environment, very relaxed and um, great for networking and building networks. Um, the other thing, if, if you don't mind uh, me mentioning, is, is my own networking event that I started up um, around the time that Cardboard Sword was being formed just before that actually. A friend of mine, Bruce Slater, and I um, were sat in a pub after I'd been made redundant discussing what my options were. We started listing companies in the region between us. Before we knew it, just in the sort of Middlesbrough, northeast area, we had a list of 14 odd companies. We thought none of these guys, as far as we were aware, knew about each other. So uh, Bruce kind of said we should set up a network event or something. And I just kind of remember standing up and going, okay, let's do it. And, and so we, we did, and we, we had our first event, and we had sort of 60 odd people there. And um, five years later, we're doing. Um, events well we do two large events a year and we get around 200 300 people there and it's sort of networking people bring their games along and it, we get sponsorships so we put on free drinks and uh, that's been great because that's built my network and it's helped lots of people in the northeast to sort of find jobs find other developers start companies together or um everything you know some relationships have started we've had people who have had um anxiety or depression issues that have um, being able to relieve those to a degree um, through the event. It's kind of like networking light almost and uh, being a regional group and a lot of these people knowing each other and, and being friends has, has made it suddenly feel like there's an, an actual network of people, a community of developers up here. And that's been very rewarding. I'm, I'm very proud that I set that up with Bruce. It's definitely had an impact. So yeah, I'm very proud of that. Thanks for listening to the first season of Inside Indie Games. And I've got just one ask for you just now. Find us on Twitter at UK Games Fund and tell us who you want to hear on a future episode. We'll do our best to track them down and bring them on. And if you want to find out more about us too, hop over to UKGamesFund.com. See you on the next episode.